Welcome back to the Evidence for Faith podcast with Michael Lane. If you're enjoying our content and would like to help us keep making more episodes on this podcast, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And while you're on the website, make sure to check out some of the other things we got going on, like our specialty programs. We've got one in marine biology, which is an entire marine biology course down in the Florida Keys. And it's great for students ages 14 and up. We also have our biblical archaeology tour in Israel with archaeologists Dr. Stephen Notley. That's coming up very, very soon. So make sure to check those out. And we also have our bookings calendar open. So if you're looking for a speaker to come speak at your event, church, group, school, whatever it may be, make sure to get in your request in right away. And finally, if you have enjoyed a particular series on this podcast, or you want to go back and look at a particular episode, our courses page has every single series we've ever done on the podcast nicely organized in its own course page. And sometimes there's a few extra little downloads and things you can use if you want to go back and study a particular series or share it with a friend or a family. All these links are going to be down in the description if you want to refer back to them after you're done listening to today's episode. And with that, thanks for being here and I'll let Michael take it away. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane, back with you again as we're continuing in this series that we're doing as podcasts on the basics of apologetics and just answering some basic questions that frequently come up that um, people will have with the Bible skeptics or even people just in general, not skeptics necessarily, but people just wonder about the Bible. Um, For instance, not long ago, I was asked by a person um, who came up to me, an adult adult lady, and said, can you give me a reason why you really believe that the Bible is so true? And I said, well, there's a lot of things, a lot of reasons I can give you. Um, But one I said is, well, what about the Old Testament prophecies of world events? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, the Bible is very unique because it has so much to say about um, was written in ancient times, but so much to say about the future. And all these things came true. And they're like, like, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? And so I started mentioning a few things to them. And, you know, this isn't the first time anybody's ever asked me this. And this is often a question that comes up. And I will many times ask, because to me, this is really a remarkable thing. Fortune telling, you know, you can go to somebody and, and people have your hand read and stuff, or they'll tell your future by star charts and things. But they're not always 100% accurate. And sometimes they're their um, predictions are so vague. Bible is not like that whatsoever. Um, so let's take a look at the Bible and its trustworthiness based on world history fulfilled. Let's take a look at that. Now, compared to other religious writings, the Bible, as if you've listened to anything I've spoken on, is extremely unique. It's a one-of-a-kind compilation of 66 books, written by 40 different authors over a span of 2,000 years, what I often call them and use this as a cliche, there are 66 love letters written by a loving God to, God to us to tell us how we should live and how to have eternal life. Many of these books contain prophecies concerning world events. And the thing is, they have, um, they have occurred just as they were recorded. I mean, exactly, you see the things. Now, telling the future is something that people have been fascinated with and 
have invested in since ancient times. Just yesterday, watching a television program in the morning, and they had, um, it was... Um, it was Halloween. I'll just add that to this, that um, they happened to have this uh, talk show in the morning, a person who was um, like an astrologer who came and was giving um, the future events for each one of the people who were hosts on the show. And I was sitting here just listening to him. They were standing there in awe, like, oh, my gosh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is what this is what's going to happen. But I'm standing there or I'm sitting there listening to this. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, these are so vague that I turned it off. I didn't intend to watch it anyway, but I switched the channel because this was it's something that I don't think Christians should get involved with. I mean, God's law says don't go consulting stuff like this. And I don't think we should. We see this constantly in the Bible being. Um, pronounced as an ungodly thing to do, and actually is a a sin, Um, something that separates us from a holy God. You want to know the future? Hey, study the Bible. Um, So since ancient times, like I say, people have been just fascinated with this kind of stuff. And perhaps, arguably, the most famous of all psychics in the ancient world was the Delphic Oracle. Um, Located in Delphi, Greece, in ancient times, the Oracle was... Not actually a single person, but it was actually a position held by many women over hundreds of years. The oracle would be a virgin girl sitting above, in most cases, sitting above um, a fissure in the earth where um, gases were uh, from deep within the earth were were coming up. That's where they would build these temples. And um, these girls are drugged, and some of them were demon-possessed, without a doubt, as is recorded in Acts chapter 16, verses 16, 17, and 18, when Paul is traveling through um, and um, in, his, in his journeys. It reads, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that hour. So this is an oracle. And if you read the the Greek here and how she is described, she's an oracle of uh, Apollo. Um, she was the voice of Apollo to these people um, in Philippi. And so that's where this all takes place. And Philippi didn't have a fissure in the earth, so having an oracle there who could do fortune telling was a major convenience for them that they wouldn't have to travel to Delphi to, um, to g- find out the um, future events and stuff. But in this case, this oracle um, was using satanic power. Um, there have been many famous oracles or we can call them seers, or you can call them prophets, all those words apply to them, that have been popular over time. Nostradamus, um, who lived in in France in the 1500s, is one of the best known, um, and he is remembered mostly for his uh, prophetic little poems that he wrote referring to future events. Most of his predictions have not come true. Uh, modern prophets will take some of his lines, his poems, and twist them around and try and make them partially or try to get some type of truth out of them, but the majority of his of his predictions just never came true. And he's not really what we would call biblically as a true prophet. There was uh, Edgar Cayce. 
he sometimes was called the sleeping prophet. He was one of the most famous psychics of the 20th century. Although he predicted the beginning and the end of both world wars um, and the lifting of the Depression in 1933, he did also predict uh, two presidents being assassinated and the radical concept in the United States, um, or um, not the racial, excuse me, the racial conflicts in the United States. Um, Outside of that, almost all of his other predictions never came true. So he had a few things correct. Uh, but most of them weren't weren't anything, just just words being spouted that never occurred. And then there's the famous Jean Dixon. Uh, those in the Midwest know her well because she was born in Wisconsin in 1904, and she felt that her abilities were actually a gift from God, she actually called it. Uh, she predicted some things which brought her fame. Uh, one was the assassination of President Kennedy. However, it was uh, one of her lesser accurate ones that she predicted. In 1956, she said in a magazine interview that the winner of the 1960 election would be assassinated or die in office, though not necessarily in his first term. Now, that's what she stated. There's her prediction. And, of course, President Kennedy was elected, and he did die in office. He was assassinated. Actually, she said later on that she thought the prediction was dealing with Richard Nixon. But it wasn't. Um, but the vagueness of this prediction meant that it could be shaped later by the media to fit the events. Uh, she was one of the most famous of the seers of recent history. She was often published in a magazine called the National Enquirer and, and other little tabloids that were out there. Very popular. But in the long run, the majority, the vast majority of her predictions never, ever came true. Then there's Sylvia Brown. Sylvia Brown had developed a strong following amongst the public. She was an author and a psychic medium, as well as a founder of her own church, the Society of Novus Spiritus. She authored and were co-authored at least 40 books that I'm aware of and gave readings to groups and individuals. She also, like many other famous psychics, gave predictions. Again, like all these others, um, she didn't appear to have a very good success rate. Most of her stuff was vague, and uh, even the ones that she made that were uh, less vague never came true. So the majority of her prophecies never came true either. Well, how are we to know? That's a question, as I was telling a person this one time, they said, well, how are we supposed to know if a person is really speaking from God or not? Well, actually, as I say, if we study our Bible, we find the answers to this, because God tells us what to do when we come across someone claiming to be a prophet. John writes this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. All these passages I'm going to be reading today are the English Standard Version. He writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. God is telling us right here. Um, that if a person is a true prophet, if he's speaking from God, um, the success rate is going to be 100%. Not 90%, not 80%, not 95%, not even 98 or 99%. It's going to be 100%. Why? Because God is a God of truth. 79 times in Scripture, he is referred to as a proper name, truth. God cannot lie. So if God says something's going to happen, it is going to happen, and it's going to happen in the way that he said. Now, these oracles, these prophets that we've mentioned here and others that have come and gone, 
have not been 100% accurate. They're not speaking for God. And we're warned not to trust people like that. Now, the Bible, though, is God's word. And it is true. It is sometimes referred to as truth. No other religious writings have amassed such a list of prophecies in their pages. No, none. The Bible is extremely unique in this aspect among religious writings to have so many world prophecies um, actually mentioned in it. Even the Islamic Quran does not have any prophecies in it, with the exception of a self-fulfilled prophecy that Muhammad would return to Mecca before he died. Well, he controlled that prophecy so he could make sure it takes place. But other world religions, the writings of the Hindus, Buddhists, New Agers, Wiccans, and even writings of many atheists do not have world prophecies contained in them. The Bible is full of them. Um, now, what I'd like to do is just take a few moments here, and as I often get asked this question, I'll just pop these up in, in my mind and just give these as response. We can't go through the whole thing here, um, a whole class on uh, historic prophecies fulfilled um, that are recorded in the Bible. We'd be here a long time because there's so many of them, but I will give you a few here uh, so that we can look at and see how accurate the Bible is, and even this how amazing it is that little details even come true. So let's start off with the book of Daniel. Major book of prophecy, Daniel is, uh, chapter 2, verse 31 through 33, to set the scene for you. Nebuchadnezzar's had a bad dream, probably ate some chili or something that night. Um, maybe anchovies on his pizza or something, but he had a bad dream. And it was actually God-induced, and God gave him a vision. It scared the beejeevers out of him. And so he calls for his wise men and his seers and prophets to come and, and explain the dream. Because it terrified him, but he didn't know what it was, what it's about. And, of course, they say, well, tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. I see what you're doing. I'm going to give you something, and then you're going to wait for something to befall me, and then you'll say it was in the prophecy. No, no, no. If you guys are really prophets of the gods, you're going to be able to tell me what the dream is without me telling it to you. And you'll tell me interpretation. Of course, they were, like, balking at this. No way can we do that. And finally, um, well, he orders the death of all these people, but then finally Daniel finds out about this, and Daniel goes to the king, and uh, he comes back, tells his three friends, hey, let's pray because we're going to be put to death if God doesn't reveal this to us, and God gave Daniel the dream. And so in Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 33, here's what Daniel writes. as He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty, and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partly of clay. This is talking about the different kingdoms coming into the Gentile world. This prophecy was written around 530 B.C., and was filled, fulfilled over the next few centuries during what we call in history the times of the Gentiles. Now, just take a little rabbit trail here with me for just a second. There are some Bible scholars and, and others who say that Daniel did not write his book, Daniel, that it wasn't written until the first century before Christ was born. Thus, Daniel's prophecies and stuff like this were not really prophecies. Daniel, the person who wrote Daniel, because Daniel, obviously, if this was written just before Christ was born, Daniel is not the author. And so somebody was taking this as um, a, a pseudoname and 
taking the world events and making it into this. I totally disagree with this. I've examined this. I cannot get into time, does not allow me to go into details all about this, but I'll, I'll give you a good, uh, an excellent source on this. The apologist Josh McDowell wrote a book many years ago called Daniel in the Critic's Den. Daniel in the Critic's Den. It's not in print anymore, but if you look around on Amazon, they can do searches and other book places like this or bookstores can do searches and they can find copies because there were many, many copies of this printed in his time. And in this book, um, Josh McDowell totally disassembles the arguments about this, that, that Daniel was written at the time of uh, just before Christ. He does tell us and gives uh, ample evidence showing that Daniel actually was the real person who wrote this, and it was written around 530 B.C., it fits. And so I don't have time to go into that. It's a whole nother lesson. Um, actually, that would be multiple lessons going into all the details and showing this. But I do believe that Daniel wrote this around 530 B.C. And it was talking about what's going to happen during the times of the Gentiles. Now, I've said that before, times of the Gentiles. What do I mean? The times of the Gentiles are, uh, it's a term of history. In the land of Israel, you have, um, once David becomes king, you have the Davidic period, or what we sometimes are often called in history, the time of the monarchs, um, the monarchy of David, when David's descendants are sitting on the throne as kings of Israel and later Judah, David's descendants there. Now, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he ends that. When Nebuchadnezzar comes, he stops the reign of Daniel's descendants on the throne because he removes the kingship from Israel. And to this day, Israel does not have a king. They have a prime minister, but they don't even have a king. But the time is coming in the future when the Messiah returns and he will sit on the throne of David and then will be in the Messianic kingdom. But between the kingdom of David and his descendants, which ended with Babylon, Babylon coming, Nebuchadnezzar, and to the time when Jesus returns as the conquering warrior, judge, king, Messiah, to sit on the throne of David. In this time period in between, we have history of a couple of thousand years of um, what's called the times of the Gentiles. This is when the Gentiles are ruling the land of Israel, and that's the way it still is somewhat to this day, though Israel is coming out of that uh, since 1948. So it seems like the times of the Gentiles is closely coming to an end, uh, which deals with future prophecies in the last days of the last days. But here we go into another whole thing we're not going to get into at this point. So this is what basically just... This is what's going to happen during the times of the Gentiles. That's what this image that Daniel is telling King Nebuchadnezzar he dreamt of, that's what this refers to. And the first part of this, it says there's a head of gold. Daniel explains this, and this is referring to the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar himself, um, that was ruling at that time. So that's the kingdom that is there now. You're, um, and Daniel says, you are the head of gold. Uh, second kingdom that comes. The second part of this is the, the head, um, after the head of gold, would be followed by an empire symbolized by arms of silver. Um, and the silver part. Now this represents the Medo-Persian Empire. 
the Medo-Persian Empire, which comes after the Babylonians. Babylonian Empire lasted just a short time, and then the Medo-Persians come. Daniel sees, it's interesting, because when Daniel begins, you have the monarchy of David. Um, very quickly, that stops within the first few verses, and you have the Babylonian Empire, and then you get to chapter 5 of Daniel, and you're in the Medo-Persian Empire. So all these things. So the Medo-Persian Empire comes, and they will rule. Then after him, the, them, the next major kingdom in this dream is a Grecian kingdom, which is the one of bronze, and it conquers the Medo-Persian Empire. Of course, this is Alexander the Great, and he conquers and unites the world, basically, Hellenizes the world. But upon his death, the empire is divided up, which Daniel actually, we don't have time to go into this, he actually prophesizes all of that, too, that the kingdom would be divided up. Let's go to the fourth part of this dream, and we have legs of iron. This is, no doubt, the Roman Empire. Um, Iron represents the Roman Empire. Uh, which um, from Europe comes and conquers basically the Greek Empire and the rest of the world. They conquer practically everything, and it lasts for almost a thousand years, this this reign of the Roman Empire. And they conquered that. But then, um, then there's another one that comes. The fifth symbol is iron and clay. This is referring to the end times, the end times, and it's going to talk about the beast. And Daniel has a lot to say on that. That's uh, He calls him the beast later on, and most Christians today call him the Antichrist. But that has to do with, again, future things. Um, are you starting to gather that Daniel has a lot of prophecy in it? <laughs> there is a lot. And there's a lot debating to, uh, debated today about the actual meaning of all of this and how this will all occur. It's sort of a mystery to us. And, but, you know, there's actually a sixth symbol that comes along. There's a rock, a stone that comes down out of the sky and destroys all the empires and becomes a large mountain. This is undoubtedly Jesus, the Messiah. And when he comes, he conquers all of the kingdoms, even this last one that was iron and clay twisted together um, and mixed together, some translations say, um, and, and comes together like that. But the thing is, these kingdoms came and went, just as David said, and we're coming up to the last two, which haven't occurred yet. Um, and that's the uh, when the beast comes to power and then when Jesus returns. So we have those kind of things happening. But that's just the first one. Oh my gosh, there's so much more we could go into Daniel. Daniel, you could spend um, two semesters in seminary just studying the book of Daniel and its prophecies. There's so much in there. Let's talk about a second one. Egypt would never again be a world power. Now, this is an interesting prophecy. It's from the book of Ezekiel. Yeah, let's get out of Daniel for a bit. Let's go to Ezekiel, another major prophet. And in Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 13, 14, and 15, Ezekiel tells us something that tells the world something that just shocked the world, and it's concerning Egypt. He writes, For thus says the Lord God, At the end of forty years I will gather the Egyptians from among the people whom they were scattered, and I will restore the fortunes of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Panthros, the land of their origin. And there they shall be a lowly kingdom. It shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms, and never again shall exalt itself above the nations. I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations. Now, why is this such an amazing prophecy? Why am I pulling this one out? Well, this was written around 593 to 571 B.C., and for the past 2,000 years— 
this is still ringing true. You see, up to that time, when Ezekiel wrote this, Egypt was still a major player in world powers. Go back to the, the glory days of Egypt with the pyramids during the time of Abraham and stuff and the period of Moses and the Exodus and things. And even during the times of the Old Testament, you come across Egypt being a major world player. Well, they were. But this is a prophecy saying that never again will they be a world player. They're not going to be a major power. And today, Egypt is not a world power. When it was written, yes, it was a major kingdom in the ancient world, but God made a declaration. And it has failed to ever be that prominent as it once was. Oh, sure, it's been ruled now by the Greeks, it's been ruled by the Romans, it's been ruled by the Ottomans and the Europeans, and today, Egypt is just a small little independent nation. It's not a major player in world events like it used to be in the past. So it's a very interesting prophecy in how it came true. I mean, it came close at one point uh, when Cleopatra came to power um, during the time of Julius Caesar. She tried to utilize the Romans to bring back Egypt into a world power. Uh, Julius Caesar, of course, is murdered uh, at the Ides of March, and then she picks up with um, her little um, little affair with Mark Antony. Mark Antony, if you're not aware of this, was a very close friend of Herod the Great. Yes, the same Herod who tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was born. And he knew um, Mark Antony and Cleopatra very, very well. Matter of fact, um, Herod the Great and Mark Antony were very close friends. Uh, though Herod never really cared much for Cleopatra, you can tell from ancient writings, uh, he had a fear of her because he could see right through her and saw that she was trying to make Egypt into a world power. And he knew that she was after his land. Um, but it's interesting. Throughout all this, because um, Cleopatra and Mark Antony were defeated by the Romans at the Battle of Actium, Egypt has never been a major world power ever since, just as, the God, as God proclaimed in his word. Let's talk about another one. Here's a third one that's really interesting, the downfall of the kingdom of Edom. Again, staying in the book of Ezekiel, going to chapter 25. Starting at verse 12 and going through verse 14, we read about this kingdom called Edom. Um, now, here's how it reads. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and is grievously offended in taking vengeance on them, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut it off, cut off from it man and beast. I will make it desolate. From Teman even to Dedan, they shall fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom. By the hand of my people Israel, they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. And they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Now, this is interesting because this prophecy, again, written by Ezekiel around 593 to 571, was fulfilled during the first century B.C., first century B.C. You see, up to that time, Edom in the Old Testament was located, just to give you an idea, if I keep talking about Edom, like everybody knows where it's at. If you have your Bible and you can look in the back at an atlas and if you find an Old Testament image of the, the land of Israel, you will see where the land of Edom was. It's uh, to the south and southeast of Israel, back in a, like a desert and arid place. That's where they built this. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you will find out that David practically annihilated this kingdom. Um but around 715 B.C., 
Edom won back their independence from Judah, um, definitely when King Ahaz was reigning. And so they became a power again. Herod the Great is a descendant of the Edomites. He's not Jewish, he's an Edomite. The reason for this prophecy, though, is foretelling the doom of this nation, because Edom was mocking and ridiculing the Israelites when they were being attacked by the Babylonians. In other words, they sort of acted like as a cheering section for the Babylonians. It was like a football game to them. Go, Babylonians, go, tackle, kill, slaughter these Jews. And that's what happened. So God calls down this curse upon them. Petra is the capital. And today, if you go to to Edom, you will find Petra as being a, uh, it's a tourist site, but it's totally a vacant place. It's, um, it's a tourist site. If you've seen the movie uh, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, the end of the movie, that's at Petra. The beautiful stone image carved into the rock cliff there, that's Petra. And this prophecy was fulfilled during this period of time around um, five, nine, uh, around the first century. It was totally destroyed. And today, Petra and Edom are a tourist site. You can go see houses, buildings, temples, all sorts of things carved into the stone. Nobody lives there. It is a totally vacant place. The only people there are tourists. And it's very popular and a beautiful place, though. Let's go to another one. The fourth one I want to talk about is the destruction of mighty Tyre. Now, again, if you need an atlas to find out where this is, Tyre is in present-day Lebanon. Present-day Lebanon. But at its time... During the Babylonians and the Old Testament period and the Babylonians and stuff, um, even after the Babylonians, this was one of the major players in the world. It was often considered an unconquerable city at the time of Ezekiel's writing. And in Ezekiel chapter 26, verses 3 through 14, you see God pronouncing judgment on this mighty city of Tyre in the land back then. It was of Phoenicia. It reads, starting at verse 3, of chapter 26. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you. Just stop here for a second. You see many nations. More than one kingdom is going to come. As the sea brings up its waves, they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword, and they will know that I am the Lord. Now just stop here for a second. You notice it's talking about both being at the sea and in the land. Tyre was a city, one city, but it was in two places. It's right on the coast. It was a coastal city, major coastal port, and a major fortified city on land. But a, not quite a mile offshore was an island, and they built another island with huge walls and towers around it, too. And so it was two cities, one in the sea and one on land. Continuing, starting at verse 12 now, they will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses, your stones and timbers and soil they will cast into the midst of the waters. Now, that's interesting. Um, continuing verse 14, I will make you a bare rock. 
You shall be a place for the spreading of nets. You shall never be rebuilt, for I am the Lord. I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now, Ezekiel's writing this around 587 B.C., and he's prophesying against this extremely powerful city. At this time, when Ezekiel is writing this, Tyre has, has reached its zenith. Its, its commercial prosperity is at the highest. It's the cosmopolitan center of the Near East. It was considered an impregnable city. Why impregnable? Because when an army came from the shoreline from the west, what the inhabitants did is, did is they fled the coastal city and took the boats, because they had a large navy, and they took their boats and went over to the island city. There, they had access to, to water with cisterns and stuff. They had fresh water. They also had the sea, and they had a harbor there. So they could go out and get fish and stuff, and they had stored grain there. And so when the enemy came, they fled to that city. When the enemy left, they went back and rebuilt the land city again. So they were considered impregnable. Um, so there were two tires, um, cities of Tyre. Now, it came under attack a number of times, but in 587, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon turns his attention to Tyre, and he defeats mainland Tyre very quickly. Um, and so now the people have left the mainland, and they've gone out to the island. Nebuchadnezzar spent 13 years trying to destroy that city, and he failed. He never did. They mocked him from the walls, and there wasn't anything he could do about it because he had no way of getting his army out into the middle of the sea like that. After Nebuchadnezzar, the people came back, they rebuilt the city, et cetera, et cetera. And then another upstart comes around 332 B.C. by the name of Alexander the Great, the great Macedonian king with the Greek army. And he conquers very quickly the mainland city also. And the people did as they always did. They fled to the island city and they stayed there. And while there, they got up on the walls and they were mocking Alexander, who could hear them. They could see him um, about a mile away. Alexander then got very upset with these people. Uh, this is not a person you want to get upset because Alexander Great, according to historians, to one historian in particular, a Jewish rabbi came up to Alexander with the scroll of, uh, of Ezekiel and explained this prophecy. Now, I don't know if this is true, but it is interesting that one Greek historian mentions this. But in any case, Alexander, as he's being mocked by the people in the island city, turns around and walks back into the rubble of the city uh, that he just conquered on the mainland. He picks up handfuls of the garbage, of the, of the rock and timber and stone. He just picks up two handfuls of debris, walks back into the city, and drops it into the ocean there, into the Mediterranean. Then he commands his generals, have all of our soldiers do the same thing. I want to take the rubble from the city and build a walkway, a causeway out to that island. I want to use my army and destroy this pe uh, these people. And that's what he did. It began a seven-month siege of the city by taking the stones and rubble from the mainland city, which is exactly what God said was going to happen, and making a road through the sea to tear down the walls of the impregnable city. Thus it fell. Alexander um, had some, it was a difficult battle at times. That's why it took 13, or uh, sorry, it took seven months um, to do this. He had naval battles that took place. He went and got sent for ships up north. They came down, but he built this causeway with his siege equipment and conquered the city. Impregnable Tyre fell, just as God said. Up to that time, no one had ever been able to defeat this place. 
um, Alexander did what no one else thought of. And as it said in verses 4 and 12, he took the rubble from the land and dumped it into the sea. And he built this artificial causeway. Today, over the centuries, sand and storms have washed more sand and debris. Um, the waves and stuff have caused more debris to wash up along this, uh, what's called Alexander's Moat. That's what it's called today, this land bridge. And it's got much, much bigger than it originally was. Um, but you can go and walk out from mainland. You can walk to the ancient city um, where uh, Alexander took his siege equipment and totally conquered the city. Now, just to give you a little bit more history on Tyre, what happened, 58 years later, they tried to rebuild it. It never was rebuilt to its majesty it had before. It just never was a major player anymore because it was just an ordinary city because any army could now walk out there. Alexander made that possible. Um, In 1124 A.D., AD. We're talking thousands of years later now. It was taken by the Crusaders. The Crusaders uh, conquered this land, um, which then, not long after that, in 1291, the Mamluk Muslims conquered it. And each time they, they conquered it, they would sort of build it or, you know, they would reduce it to ashes. And the Crusaders built little fort there, but it never got to be very powerful because the Muslims, uh, they conquered it. Today, it's part of the island city. Uh, there's a small section of the island city that's become um, sort of a residential area. It's not a big, massive fortress and stuff, but many of the ruins are totally untouched from the time of Alexander's destruction. And if you go there today, you will actually see fishermen spreading their nets on the ruins of this city, which, if you recall, God's twice said in this passage that Tyre would be a place to spread nets. Oh, let's go to another one real quick here. Number five, the destruction of Nineveh. Nahum, the minor prophet Nahum in verse or chapter 1, verse 14 writes, The Lord has given commandment to you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image, and I will make your grave. Make your grave, it says, for you are vile. I will make your grave. He's talking about Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, one of the largest cities of the ancient world. The Assyrians conquered the world. They never lost a major battle until towards the very end. Nineveh was considered also the impregnable city of the world at the time. Yet God prophesied through Nahum that the city would not only be destroyed, it would be turned into a grave. In other words, it would be buried and never rebuilt. Nahum prophesied this in 630 B.C. And when he said this, this must have caused laughter all over because Nineveh, People would say there's no way Nineveh could be destroyed like that and turned into a grave. So they must have thought Nahum was nuts for making this prediction. Yet, less than 20 years later, in 612 B.C., this city was conquered, and eventually it was buried by a sandstorm. Actually, for a long period of time, it was considered a mythical city because there was no trace of it. And it wasn't until the 1800s A.D., Um, just within 200 years ago, that they finally located it. Archaeologists started finally digging, thinking maybe this isn't a mythical place after all, and they did find it buried just where the Bible says it would be. Now, I want to tell you something else that's really interesting about how this city fell. Nahum goes on and makes predictions about the fall of the city, and in one of these, he tells how the city is going to fall. It's in chapter 3, verse 11. Now, get this. This is so cool. You will also be drunken. And you will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. Now, what's that saying? The inhabitants of Nineveh, when they're going to be conquered, are going to be drunk. 
Well, according to the ancient historian Diodorus Siculus, he wrote, quote, The Syrian king gave much wine to his soldiers. Deserters told this to the enemy who attacked that night, unquote. Exactly as God said it was going to happen. It fell. Which takes us to one other one I'm going to get to, the fall of Babylon. We're talking about impregnable cities. Let's add Babylon to the list. The book of Isaiah in 13, 19, chapter 13, verse 19 reads, In Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms and the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. You see, Babylon was the greatest city in the ancient world. It had a river running right through the city. Bars extended down into the water to prevent anyone from sailing into the city that they didn't want. Invaders and stuff could not come in. It had food supplies in reserve, according to historians, that could last more than a decade of siege. Its walls, according to Greek historians, were over 300 feet high of glazed tile, making sort of slippery too. It was the symbol of an unconquerable city and nation. Yet God spoke through Isaiah around 680 BC, foretelling its destruction. This would happen 141 years later in 539 BC. God even said who was going to conquer it. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 17, he says, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Now, just stop here for a second. Look at Daniel chapter 5. Who conquers Babylon? That's the handwriting of the wall passage. Belshazzar's the king. He's the last king. He's killed that night when the Medes entered the city. Isaiah also in chapter 45, verse 1 writes, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open the doors before him that gates may not be closed. Isaiah is prophesying through God that the guy who's going to conquer it is Cyrus. Cyrus will be the person who destroys the Babylonian uh, city and the kingdom there. Cyrus is not even born yet, yet God predicts who is going to be the person, even by the name. And how it's going to be falling, um, it will fall with its doors. It says here, the doors would be open. How could a city like this just allow the invaders to walk in? Again, go back to Daniel, read chapter 5. You find out there was a massive party going on in the city, and the people were totally drunk. And um, Daniel, he, he, it says in Daniel chapter 5, verse 30 through 31, that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old, and he's under Cyrus the Great. The Medes dug a canal. This is how they did it. They dug a canal around the city to divert that river that ran through the city to flow around the city. Thus, the riverbed dried up, and the people could then walk through, walk into the city underneath those bars. They walked in, they go to the gate, they open the gate, Babylon fell with the gates being opened, the people were drunk, um, and um, they just walked right in. And Jeremiah also predicted that Babylon would fall, and he does this 50 years prior to the event actually happening. And with this fall, we have the rebuilding then with, when Cyrus comes to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Isaiah says in verse chapter 44, verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. 
Now, the Babylonians, if you recall, under Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, broke down all the walls, etc., etc. Yet Isaiah is saying, no, the temple's going to be rebuilt and Jerusalem's going to be, re be rebuilt. Now, here's the, here's the thing, folks. When Isaiah wrote this, Jerusalem was standing. The temple was standing. Yet he's saying, um, Jerusalem's going to fall. It's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be destroyed. Everything's going to be, all the stones knocked down. Yet a guy named Cyrus will be born who's going to order Jerusalem and the temple rebuilt. Now this is happening, Isaiah's writing this around 680 B.C. Yet it's happened exactly as he said. This prophecy is 100% accurate. The most amazing thing to me is that it even names the guy who was going to do it. Cyrus, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 13. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make his way straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. We even have a whole archaeology thing dealing with Daniel and about the Cyrus Cylinder, which describes this whole event taking place. You can find that on our, our website also. But in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, it was predicted that the Jews would be in captivity for 70 years before this would happen, and that is exactly what happened. Um, in the first year of Cyrus's reign, he decrees to the Jews to go back and rebuild their, their temple, rebuild their city after being 70 years in captivity under Babylonians. My friends, we've examined only a few prophecies made in the Bible concerning world history. As I say, we could make a whole semester course on this. And each one came true exactly as predicted. In fact, there's over a thousand prophecies concerning history in the Bible. With a few exceptions of the end time prophecies, which haven't occurred yet, Everything has come true exactly, 100% accuracy. No other book has anything like this. And if a prophet of God ever made a prediction it didn't come true, the penalty for that was stoning. You're to kill him. Um, yeah, give that to our prophets and fortune tellers and seers today. If one of the things you say doesn't come true, we get to kill you. There won't be that many people around trying to do that, I don't think. But the Bible is the only book with this kind of prediction. No other religious writing has this. Folks, this shows the Bible is being so different, God-inspired, and it is true. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this and this lesson today as we've gone through a little bit of the history. Again, showing you evidence that the Word of God is true through world history. And as I said, I wish we could spend more time going over more and more and more of these, but this would be a whole year-long class or something, a couple of semesters, to go through all of the historic prophecies that occur in the Bible. It's just amazing. I love this book. It is the inspired Word of God. It's the way that you uh, you find uh, salvation. It's the clues to how to have a, a, a blessed life and a, a successful life. Everything is in here, including how Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and he is the only way, the only way to have eternal life. So I hope you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior. We'd love to hear from you. Please contact us on our, on our webpage. And until we meet again, take care, and may God bless. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.